All right, if I could get your attention, we'd get this show on the road. This is our ninth lesson out of a 10-week series, but next week we're actually going to do a Thanksgiving message. So today's the last day in the Gospel of Mark. So we're going to be uh, moving rather rapidly. You know, instead of taking close-up pictures, we're going to be, you know, about 40,000 feet, you know, looking down on a big area. So we're going to go through uh, chapter 13 through 16 today. So put on your seatbelt. Here we go. Uh, and uh, in today's movie, you know, the, in Jesus was arrested. They basically had just rigged trials. He, he had six different rigged trials every time, and he didn't defend himself because it was his plan, you know, God's plan to be crucified. And the rigged trials were a lot like this rigged game we're going to watch here. All right, we are in Mark 13. If you have your Bible or your electronic device, please turn to Mark 13. And last week, uh, we saw that he was having, Jesus was having confrontations with all the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the scribes, the priests, all of them got a shot at him. And he confounded all of them. And during the Passion Week, it was his uh, M.O., to go up there to, to the temple and to teach and to debate or confront the religious leaders. And then at the end of the day, he and his disciples would leave out the east gate, out the east side of Jerusalem, and then walk up the Mount of Olives and then to Bethany. So as they go up the Mount of Olives, his disciples stop and they go, hey, look how awesome all the buildings are there on the Temple Mount. The marble, the gold, the silver, all, you know, all these ornate stuff on the Temple grounds. And they said, isn't that awesome? And in verse 2, chapter 13, verse 2, Jesus says, really? You're that impressed with these buildings? That's what you're impressed with? I mean, he's done all these miracles, right? <laughs> and they're impressed with the building. He says, the fact is, not one stone shall be left upon another which will not be torn down. They're all going to be destroyed. You know, they're man-made things, and they'll be man-made torn down, too, by people. And, of course, that came true in 70 AD, not too long from here. The Roman uh, army invaded and surrounded uh, Jerusalem and knocked the walls down, came in, took everything, and uh, knocked everything on the temple grounds they burned it and knocked it down and just like Jesus predicted not one stone was left on top of another and if you go there now you'll see where the Romans literally pried up the stones and pushed them off the top of the temple mount and they're sitting there down in the valley right now they're still there see exactly what Jesus said would happen and as he's sitting there on the, temp, on the Mount of Olives, and by the way, this is called uh, one of Jesus' discourses. It's called the Olivet Discourse because he, he, he teaches this about the future while they're on the Mount of Olives to his inner group, Peter and James and John and Andrew, privately said, okay, you've told us now that you're going to be executed uh, and you've also told us that these buildings are going to be destroyed. When is all this going to happen? And when should, how, should, how we know when you're coming back? What's the sign of your coming and when all these things are going to be 
fulfilled. So Jesus began to say to them, see to that no one misleads you. So that's a key there. Don't let anybody mislead you with the following. So the first thing he's going to do is not tell them what the sign is of his second coming. He's going to tell them what it is not. It is not the following. And he goes through, uh, there will be wars and rumors of wars and all kinds of fighting, uh, but that's not it. There'll be natural disasters of every kind, earthquakes and everything else. That's not it. False Christ will, will pop up and say, I'm the one. Well, when somebody does that, you'll know that isn't it. Famines and on and on and on. All the stuff that happens normally in a fallen world. It's happening right now. All this stuff he just named, it's going on right now all over the world, right? That's not it. Because Jesus, his point, and he's going to tell them this and at the end of this discourse is that when I come back, there'll be no doubt, absolutely no doubt in your mind that it's me. It will be so awesome and so glorious and so incredible that you will absolutely know. All this other stuff is just natural stuff that happens in a fallen world, so that's not it. The first thing you'll see, though, in verse 14, he quotes from... Daniel, the prophet, and he says, the first sign you'll get is when you see the abomination of desolation, that's Daniel's name for the Antichrist, when you see him in the temple. So sometime between now and then, the temple uh, on the Temple Mount there, the old Jewish temple, is going to be rebuilt. And you go, well, how can that happen? It's in uh, Muslim hands right now. Exactly. But the Jews have control of, of everything in Jerusalem. They just allow, by treaty, the Muslims to control it now. But they fully intend to build the temple back. They've already done the plans. They had the architect plans. They're all made. They have raised the money to build the building and all the utensils, gold, silver, everything that was in the old uh, uh, Solomon's temple. They've already got it, and it's done. They've already made everything. All they've got to do now, they're just waiting for whatever event will occur, some kind of war or something, where they have the excuse to take over the Temple Mount and uh, rebuild the temple. So it's going to happen, and Jesus says, when, you, when that happens and then you see this great world leader that uh, the Bible calls the Antichrist in the temple, then you'll know, it's coming soon. It's getting ready to happen. Do you see that? Uh, him quoting Daniel in verse 14. And when that happens, he says, everybody run for the hills because there's going to be persecution like there's never been before. And he calls it, verse 19, the great tribulation. So Jesus is the first one to coin that phrase. It's used again, of course, in the book of Revelation. And you see all those judgments in the book of Revelation. And part of that is the uh, tremendous persecution against the Jews and, and Christians that are there at that time. And it's so bad that unless the Lord shortened those days, unless he went ahead and came back, they would have killed all believers, see. And he says, so if somebody says, behold, here's the Christ, or I am, or he's there, don't believe him. Don't believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and show signs and wonders 
uh, if possible, to lead the elect astray, but take heed, behold, I've told you everything in advance. And here's the second coming, verse 24 through 26 through 27. Jesus will come in great and awesome power and glory with all his angels. And he's coming from above, just like he went up, he'll come down the same way. So no matter where you are in the world, you will see it. You will see the glory of God and all the angels, and there's millions and millions of them, right? And Jesus is coming back in all his glory. How glorious will it be, I hear you ask, right? (laughs) So glorious that it will blot out the sun and the moon. The light will be so bright that the sun and the moon will, will disappear because of the brightness of God's glory. Um, and I'm connecting some dots there, but that, that's what it sounds like he's, he's talking about there. When they see this, they'll know that it's him, and it will be so awesome and glorious, we will all recognize the second coming. Right? Uh, and so, when he says, when you see these things happening... You know, the persecution and the temple and what have you, then you need to get ready. You need to be on the alert and make sure you know that you're ready for the Messiah. Because verse 37, his last thing he says about it is, be on the alert. Or it could also be translated, get ready. Make sure you're ready for this now. And uh, as someone said earlier, you never know how soon it will be too late. So if you're off, you know, doing one of your projects or busy with your own life and you don't pay attention and Christ comes back, it's not that so much that you'll miss it, but you might not be ready, prepared for it, right? And, of course, in Matthew's account, uh, Jesus gave them uh, four or five parables to illustrate the importance of being ready for the second coming. Now, verse chapter uh, 14 there. Uh, sets up a great contrast between the opposition with, against Jesus, represented by Judas, of course, who are going to assist, he's going to assist, he's going to be the traitor that assists in Jesus being killed, and the contrast with the love of his disciples that love him dearly. Uh, and, of course, you'll see the point is everyone has a choice. Everyone has a choice to receive Christ, or to reject him. Judas is going to take the choice to reject. He's not the Messiah that he wanted or expected. He's disappointed in Jesus, which is kind of amazing because this guy spent three years with Jesus and after seeing all the miracles and fulfillment of prophecy and, and incredible teaching. But it was so powerful in the minds of the first century Jews that a political military Messiah was going to come and get rid of the Gentile domination and set back up the kingdom of Israel that was so important to them and they expected it so much that when Jesus came as the suffering servant, they were disappointed. As, and I think that's why Judas turns against him here. Because Jesus had been teaching, what? I'm going to be crucified And it's like, what? So we hitched our wagon to you? 
We thought you were the Messiah and you're going to go down. We, we want a Messiah that will set up the kingdom of Israel, right? Uh, and so Judas, I think, is disappointed. And then, of course, Satan is going to be allowed by God to enter into him and actually carry this horrible th- deed out. Uh, and why? Uh, because he wants to do it and God is going to use him, use his desire to do this, to make sure that Jesus gets crucified. This is God's will, see? That he be crucified. His disciples are going, nobody wants to be crucified, you know, and so if they come and get you, we're going to defend you. We won't let that happen. Jesus says, oh, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's God's will. And unless I do it, the mankind will not be redeemed. And so we know as students that it had to happen. But his disciples who are with him, they're thinking in a human sense, in a worldly material sense, that you need to prevent things like this. Prevent things like humiliation and rejection and torture and beatings, spitting on you. And you need to, you know, not have that. They're wrong. This is what we needed for Jesus to do as a suffering servant. So you see the story uh, in, in chapter four, 14, the Passover un- unleaded bread. So they're all in the town for the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth, you know, secretly and kill him. So that's, that's going on on one side. For they were saying, not during the festival. So as soon as the festival's over and people aren't paying attention and they're leaving, then we'll scoop him up. And while he was in Bethany, that's where he stayed at uh, Martha and Mary Lazarus' house, uh, they went to the home of Simon the leper and reclining at a table, and there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, pure nard. She broke the vial and poured it over his head. This is the kind of expensive perfume that was used as an anointment of family members when they were buried. Because the Jews didn't, they didn't do anything to the body. They, they just wrapped it up in linen and put it in the tomb. And so they anointed it with these uh, perfumes so it wouldn't smell. Uh, and uh, if, if they could afford it, they did it with this very expensive perfume. So what is, what is this woman actually doing? I don't know if she knows she's doing it. I don't think she does. She's just trying to show her love for Christ. But in effect, you'll see at the end of the story, this is actually the anointing of Jesus' body to be buried. See, and I think that's how, what he sees. He knows that just in a few days, he's going to be murdered, going to be killed and buried. And they don't have time to anoint him, the usual thing that they do uh, for a loved one, because they're going to rush him into the tomb before the sun goes down and the Sabbath begins, right? So this is, this is how Jesus saw this. And someone, uh, i.e. Judas, we know that from John's account, John chapter 12, Judas objected very indignant and said, why has this perfume been wasted? Now Judas, remember who he is. He is the treasurer. He's the treasurer of the disciples. He keeps the money. And of course, again, in John chapter 12, John says, 
And he was actually mad about this because he used to pilfer the treasury. <laughs> so he's basically saying, God could have had half of that. That's really what he means. But his code, in his code, he says, why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii. That's like a year's wages. And the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. You shouldn't have done that. You should have given us the money. You know. Uh, <laughs> we understand, you know, what their motives were. But the people around didn't. They, most of the people around were going, yeah, that is kind of strange. And, of course, what does Jesus say? He knows he's getting ready to be killed. So he doesn't object at all. He responds to the love that the woman gave him in putting the perfume on him like that. Jesus said, hey, let her alone. Why do you bother? She has done a good deed to me. The poor that you say you're worried about, they're going to be here at the end of the week. I'm not. That's exactly what he said to her. The poor you always have here with you, he's not making fun of them or, or saying that he doesn't care. He's just saying, at the end of the week, they're going to be here. I'm not. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. You see that? That's how Jesus sees it. He knows exactly what's going to happen. So a lot of uh, liberal theologians think that the crucifixion just happened to Jesus. The poor sap was there in Jerusalem, and they scooped him up against his will, and they killed him. You know, just another hapless victim. They don't realize that this was always the plan of God. All the prophets predicted that it would happen this, just as it's going to happen. Jesus knows that it's going down. When and how and where and the whole deal. He is in complete control over it. This has sovereignly must happen because it's the only way to save mankind. He's got to do it. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel's preached in the whole world, what this woman has done, the story will be told. And Judas Iscariot, in a huff, went off to the chief priest in order to betray him. They probably said, well, that, that breaks it, man. If I'm not going to have stealing rights to the treasury anymore, I'm going to go betray him for that amount of money I would have gotten. Right? Something like that, anyway. So he goes off to betray him. And then... Uh, we're going to see the Last Supper here in the rest of uh, chapter 14. And of course, what you may or may not have known, the Last Supper, what we call the Last Supper, was actually the Passover Supper. Going all the way back to Exodus uh, chapter 12. If you remember, uh, the tenth miracle that enabled Israel to go was the Passover. In other words, the angel of death came. And the Jews were to put innocent blood of the lamb on their doors. And the angel of death would pass over. That's the Passover. And so God commanded them in chapter 12, from this time on, every year at this time, 
This is to be the beginning of the Jewish year, and every year at this time, you celebrate the Passover. And then he gave them, you know, the feast. Everybody was supposed to offer up an unblemished lamb, and they were to eat unleavened bread, and on and on. I don't have time to go through all that. But uh, they are having the Passover feast that was prescribed under the Mosaic Law. But this is going to literally, uh, in the New Covenant, it's going to bring in the New Covenant and end the Old Covenant of the Passover, be replaced by the New Covenant of the Lord's Supper. All right? So he tells, they say, well, where are we going to do this? And so he, it's, this is very much like he did with the donkey, you know. He's going to say, Go here and check on that, and they'll tell you this, and you do this, and come here and get the stuff over here. It'll be right there and right there. And they go and do all that, and they go, it's just like he said. It's almost like he was in control. I think he just got lucky. No, but it's clear to us that Jesus had planned this whole thing out, mapped it all out. It's all according to plan. And so they go to the upper room, and by the way, uh, we see in the book of Acts that the upper room is actually uh, owned by Mark, the author of this letter, his mother. So Mark was no doubt there as well. And we'll see him afterwards at the Garden of Gethsemane also. And so this is in Mark's house. So he was probably a witness to this, you know, behind the scenes. So when it was evening, verse 17, chapter 14, 17... Uh, They came in to the room, the twelve, and they were climbing at the table and eating. Jesus said, truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, the one who is eating with me. You know, so here's Judas. Now, they trusted Judas completely or they wouldn't have made him the treasurer. So when he said, one of you is going to betray me, they were looking at everybody but Judas. They never dreamed it was him, right? And it's funny if you look at that... uh, that great painting, The Last Supper, you know, the Italian uh, artist, what's his name? Yeah, that guy. <laughs> da Vinci. Uh, if you look at that, the picture, the likeness of Judas is he's this evil, gnarled up, nasty looking guy, you know. All the other disciples are real handsome and, you know, are well groomed and everything, and then there's this evil guy, he's got a giant hook nose and everything. Uh, but the fact is, they elected this guy, the most trusted one of them. So they, didn't, they couldn't figure out who Jesus was talking about, and I think most of them were going, good, I hope it's not me, you know. So they began to be grieved and to say to him, one by one, surely not I. And he said to them, it's one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl, and Judas was, had his hand in the bowl when he said that. And yet they still didn't get it. And Jesus says, for the Son of Man is to, go, is to go, just as it is written, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. So he's saying, the prophets all predicted that I had to die this way, but woe to the man who's going to betray me. It would have been good for that man if he had not even been born. So this guy, Judas, a lot of people say, well, I I imagine Judas was probably saved because he spent three years with Jesus and he just made this one mistake. One mistake? (laughs) No, if you go look at, especially the Gospel of John, 
in John 13 and again in John 17 makes it very clear where Judas is at this point in time. And it's hot there. Just give you a hint. It's very hot. Okay? Uh, and while they were eating, he took some bread. So here's, here's where he institutes the ordinance, that will, the, what will become the ordinance of the church that will uh, take over where Passover left off. He took the bread, and after a blessing, he broke it, gave it to them and said, Take it, this is my body. And he broke it and gave it to each one of them. And when he had taken a cup, given thanks, he gave it. So it's wine, cup of wine. He gave it to them, and they all drank from the same cup. And he said to them, metaphorically, this is my blood. This stands for my blood. And he's going to say, what I want you to do in the future to remember me, instead of doing Passover, I want you to do this. And it will be a memorial to what I'm getting ready to do, to die for you. So this bread equals Jesus' body, and this cup of wine equals Jesus' blood, which will be shed. Both will be broken and shed for him. And that's a memorial that we celebrate in the church to remember what Jesus did. Because as you know, human beings are notoriously cannot remember things, right? As soon as things start going good for you and you start making money and success here and that, and people start telling you how great you are, you forget everything that's in the Bible and about God because life becomes about you. I am the greatest. I can do no wrong. Uh, but the fact is, God knows that, and he says, I want you to have memorials so you'll remember because you're terrible for gooders. And he says, truly I say to you, I shall never again drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And we call this the Last Supper, but it's not. What he's saying is, we're going to do this again in the kingdom. Next time we do this, it will be in the kingdom. So this was just the last supper of that era on earth. But he's looking forward to that day when he'll do it again in the kingdom. And after they sang a hymn, they got up and started going out. And Jesus was saying to them on the way to Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives, he said, you know what? You got upset about me saying that Judas was going to betray me. Look, guys, before this is over, you will all fall away. Because it is written, and he quotes Zechariah 13, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That's what this is about. You are the sheep, I'm the shepherd. And that's what's going to happen. You're all going to fall away. And after I have been raised, I will go before you to the Galilee. So basically what he's saying is, you guys are going to blow it. You're going to all run for the hills, scared to death. But you know what? That's okay. Because when I am resurrected, I'm going to gather you all back up. We're going to meet up there in the Galilee and regroup. And I'm going to commission you as my disciples to take the gospel to the world. That's Jesus' plan. That's what's going to happen. So it's kind of the good news, or bad news, good news, right? So he says, after I have been raised, I will go before you to the Galilee, and I'll meet you there. And naturally, Peter is the most impetuous. He always speaks for the group, and look what he says. 
I know these dummies will probably fall away, but not me. You can trust me. I will hold the line. And I will not let this happen. And I, 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 right? Exactly. So, what was the Last Supper like for the disciples? They find out one of them's a traitor, and all of them will fall away. They find out that Jesus is reinterpreting the Passover meal, which they've celebrated all their life. They're confused. What does he mean the wine is blood and the bread is broken body? What in the world does that mean? What, are we cannibals or something? And then he's talking about leaving us. We gave up everything for him. And now he's leaving us. We, we can't have this. It can't be. He's leaving. So they're all upset and everything. And then you have the story of Gethsemane where he's praying and he says, Lord, if there's any other way, and of course there's not. So he says, uh, okay, God's will, not mine. Of course, he's talking about his, his human self. Doesn't want to die, right? But he knows, his godly self knows that it must happen. And so he's willing to go through with it. His disciples, though, they're, they're not about to sit up with him. They're tired. They, they go over and go to sleep. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And then you have the arrest. Uh, you know the story. Uh, the, the, uh, Judas comes with all the people, and they're arrested. And uh, Peter stands up, pulls out a sword, swings at him lops off the, the slaves, the priest slaves there. His name was Malchus in, in uh, John's account, we're told. And uh, Jesus picks the ear up, puts it back on. That would be a mind blower. <laughs> you know. And, we, and uh, traditionally, the church believes that uh, Malchus was named, not all these other guys weren't named, but Malchus was named because I think he went away going, you know, maybe, they're, maybe that guy is the son of God. <laughs> Because I saw my ear laying down there on the ground, right? And so he probably became a believer, and that's why they named him here. And Jesus says something that very profound. You guys have come out with swords and clubs to arrest me like I was going to resist, like I'm some kind of crook or robber. Every day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you didn't seize me. You didn't guts to take me there in front of all the crowd. But the fact is, this has now happened. This has happened that the scriptures might be fulfilled. This is all according to God's plan. It was all predicted by the prophets of God, and now it's being fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. So just as he said, they all took off running. They didn't want to get arrested. If Jesus was going to be arrested, he gave himself up. They didn't want to be arrested with him. So they all ran off, and they left him. But a certain young man, and church tradition says this certain young man was Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark. And he doesn't name himself like the, most of the uh, Gospels, the author doesn't name themselves, you know, out of humility, I would say. So out of humility, he doesn't name himself, but he tells a story on himself. All I had on was this linen uh, robe, and they tried to grab me with it, and I jerked off and ran away naked. Uh, so I, I think that was probably Mark. And again, he's an eyewitness to the arrest, everything that happened in Gethsemane and the arrest as well. Uh, so they take, 
they actually had six trials. And uh, the first one was to Caiaphas. But in, in Jewish law, it was illegal to have a trial that wasn't in the open during the day. So they had to wait for the sun to come up to actually have a real trial. But what they're doing here, they're getting ready. They're prepared. Okay, let's take him for Caiaphas and get all our ducks in a row. Bring our f- fake witnesses in here. So they bring these witnesses in to say, and they dummies contradict each other. <laughs> and so Caiaphas says, get these fools out of here. and Let me take over here. So he questions Jesus. And he says to Jesus, okay, are you, this is what it comes down to, are you the Christ, the Son of the living God, of the blessed God? And Jesus says, I am. And not only that, he goes on to say, basically, not only am I the Son of God, but I'll be coming back to judge you, pal. You shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. I think he said it with such authority and strength that that guy probably chills ran down his back. Oh, I hope this is not the guy that, that he says he is. And tearing his clothes, he got so emotional. He said, that's it, we got him. And they condemned him to be deserving of death. And uh, in Matthew, if you put them all together, all the four Gospels account, They sent him to Annas' house and did the same thing. Then back to the Sanhedrin. And then they sent him to Pilate. And then he sent him to Herod. And then he sent him back to Pilate. He had six trials, all of them completely rigged. Everybody's passing him around, you know, because they want it to be their fault. They know what they're going to do. But they want it to be somebody else's fault. And so uh, they finally, in chapter 15, get him to Pilate because The Jews did not have the authority. They lived under the authority of Rome. And in Roman law, the Jews could govern their own country to a certain extent, but they could not execute people without Roman authority and approval. So they have to get Pilate, the governor, the Roman governor of that area, Judea, they had to get his approval to execute Jesus, to crucify him. So they take him to Pilate at the praetorium where, where he lives and stays. And uh, the chief priest took him in there and said, you know, right at, right at the beginning of the day, because they, they knew this was going to take a long time. We need to get this guy crucified and in the ground, dead in the ground, before 6 p.m. Because that's when the, uh, the uh, Sabbat, the Sabbath begins, Right? So we gotta, we're in a hurry here. So they take him immediately at daybreak to Pilate. And Pilate says, I, I don't really care about all your goofy religious laws. And they said, oh, but he's a traitor. He calls himself a king. So what did they just do? Earlier, they, they, uh, they convict him of blasphemy. Pilate couldn't care less about their blasphemy. Right? So they got to change, they gotta change the, uh, what they're accusing him of. To being a traitor to, you know, the uh, Roman emperor. So they said, he says he's the king, he's a traitor. 
So Pilate says, are you really the king? Answer me. And, and Jesus, actually, uh, it's translated, it is as you say. Actually, we don't even know what he said. He said something unintelligible, and, you, and that translation is just a guess. He just didn't say, he didn't really respond to it. And the chief priest began to accuse him harshly. And Pilate was questioning him again, saying, Do you make no answer? See how many charges they bring against you? Pilate's basically saying, Hey, everybody I've ever had up here knows I've got the right to execute you or set you free. Uh, most time they defend themselves. And you're not even going to defend yourself? That's, he's amazed at this guy. Uh, and, of course, he doesn't. But Pilate, asking all the questions he asked, finally said, This guy hadn't done anything wrong. He's completely innocent. What's wrong with you people? And he says, I'll tell you what. Instead of executing this guy, I'll set him free because he's, you know, this is your Passover. And they went, no, we want you to set free somebody else. He said, well, the only guy we got up here is this scumbag Barabbas. Yeah, that's the guy we want. Give us Barabbas. He's, he's like, what? Barabbas is a known thief and vagabond and murderer. And you want him set free? And this poor guy who's completely innocent, this humble man here, you want him executed? He, he, he can't make sense out of it. And so he tries to let him go, but he, Pilate's got to do one. He, as, as governor of uh, Judea, he's got to do two things. He's got to collect the taxes. He's got to keep the peace. He can see pretty quick that that keeping the peace deal is going to be difficult if he doesn't execute Jesus. So he finally just goes along with it. He says, okay, fine. But first of all, <laughs> take him back in the backyard with all the Roman soldiers and just beat the heck out of him. And just bring him back when there's not an inch of skin left on him. Maybe that will be enough for these people. And of course, they take him back, beat the heck out of him, bring him back. And he says, now, what do you want me to do? And they say, crucify him. Even the crowd says that. The priests revved them up. <coughs> and so his fate, the soldiers, uh, verse 21, start the parade out to where they're going to take him to Calvary to be executed. And he is so weak from loss of blood, he can't carry the cross beam. And so... Verse 21, they bring Simon of Serene. They grab him out of the crowd and make him carry it, right? And uh, the inscription that they put there is the king of the Jews because they were always supposed to put the crime that he had committed. And think of the irony of that. The crime that he, he put, the king of the Jews. The, the Jews said, you, you can't put that up there. Change that and it was, uh, you know, his last, it was Pilate's shot at the Jews saying, I don't like this one bit. I ain't changing nothing. This is what you deserve. This guy's innocent. And they crucified two robbers, with, looking at verse 27 now in chapter 15. One on his right and one on his left. Uh, and those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Hey, if you're the son of God, if you're who you say you are, you ought to be able to come down from there. You can't do it. 
Come down from there if you're the real thing. And of course, we know that he can't come down from there, can he? Wait a minute, this is the all-powerful God. Jesus is omnipotent as God, but he cannot come down from the cross. Why? He must do this to save us. If he doesn't do it, we are doomed. He's got to do it to redeem mankind. He has to do it. They don't know it, but when they say, you can't come down from there, they're exactly right. But they're wrong for the reason that he can't come down. They're saying he saved others, he can't save himself. Now, there's four miracles that happen there uh, at the cross that I think are very important. And uh, he's got them up here on the deal. Uh, the darkness, at, uh, they, they crucified him at 9 a.m. At 12 p.m. at high noon, everything goes dark until 3. And, and that signified that Jesus was separated from God the Father during that, for the first time ever, Jesus Christ is separated from the intimacy and the love and the relationship with God the Father. Secondly, the veil of the temple... In the temple, on the temple mount, the, uh, there was a huge veil, very thick veil, tapestry, that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place. The Holy of Holies was where the Ark of the Covenant was. Only the high priest could go in there, and only once a year. Uh, and that was torn from the top, meaning God did it, from the, from, came from above, tore it from the top down, and that signified... That now that Jesus has accomplished the redemption of mankind, our sins are atoned for, we don't anymore need priests to mediate between God and us. And so the veil being torn means the access to God is open. Direct access because our sins are now forgiven. The earthquake, you know, they're standing there and there's this huge earthquake, a powerful earth-shattering event you know, to something incredible has happened. Get their attention. And then, fourthly, believers who had previously died were raised, and that showed that, hey, everybody thinks death is final, that it's over. It's not. Jesus will be raised as we will. A lot of people ask the question, were they actually resurrected, or, were, or what was that? I th- I, this is just my theory they're actually just like Lazarus, you know, their soul was uh, reunited with their physical body, and it, which was healed, and they had to unfortunately die again. But I think they, it was a purpose that God was doing here. And you can see it in verse 36. Wait a minute. Excuse me, verse 39. In verse 39, uh, I remember in the movie they made about Jesus back in the 60s, John Wayne played the centurion. Remember that? John Wayne was the centurion at the cross who, who issued this statement that you see here in verse 39. And John Wayne's head was like an eight and a half size, you know. And he had this little helmet sitting up on top of his head, you know. And he had that pose that he always took. And he said, surely this was the son of God. He couldn't help himself. 
But the point of that was that everybody around knew something. When these miracles happened, everybody knew something incredible had happened. And the centurion's statement proved it. Everybody was in shock after all these uh, miracles happened. So much so that in verse 43, after he's dead, they take him down, they check him out. He's a goner. And Joseph of Arimathea, and uh, we see in uh, John's account, also Nicodemus come and they say, can we have the body? We want to bury him in our tomb. And they do, and they get him buried just before Passover begins at 6 p.m. And then, of course, in chapter 16, you have the resurrection. The resurrection. And I want you to take, in conclusion, I want you to look at verse 3. When Mary and Mary and Mary, there's about 100 Marys, when they all go out there uh, on Sunday, you know, this happened Friday night, and they all go back Sunday morning because they couldn't go on the Sabbath, so they went on Sunday morning to anoint him, you know, with the oil. They didn't think that that already been done back in chapter 12. Uh, and they were talking about, look what they said, verse 3. 16.3, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Which is an important question. Of course, they're going to be met by the angel who's going to say, Jesus is risen from the dead, and why do you look for the living among the dead and you know, the resurrection? But when you think about that question, the even better question is, who will roll the stone away from our grave. When they bury you and I, who's going to roll away that stone? That is the question that the whole world has to answer. Jesus Christ is going to roll away the stone of our tomb. And we will be resurrected. All the New Testament authors have attested to that. Jesus is coming back and we're going to be resurrected and spend eternity with Him. Death is the stone that no man can move but Jesus. He's the only one that can overcome death and He has done it for all who believe in Him. There's a famous hymn I'll end with called One Day, it tells the story of Jesus in five verses. I'll, I'd like to sing it, but y'all would get up and leave. So I'll say it. Living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins away. Rising, he justified freely forever. One day, he's coming back, oh glorious day. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that you loved us so much, Lord, that you came into the world, took on the flesh, lived a perfect life, and then died on the cross for the likes of us. We praise you and thank you, and we look forward to that day when he comes back and rolls away our stone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <laughs> Thank you.